0: Okay, so we're going to finish up stress today. Stress and health. Is there such thing as something that's really good and fun but can still cause stress? Yes, lots of things like sex. Okay, I just was trying to. How was stress- it stressful? Yeah. Uh, it, creates um an autonomic nervous system response um you, you know it, it uh increases levels of epinephrine norepinephrine um your autonomic nervous system becomes more active um yeah it's stressful yeah it
1: just sounds like have exercise would do that oh yeah
0: sure exercise is a stressor too yeah yeah Yeah. What kind of stress am on stuff? And I'm like, what about Yeah. Well, you know, um, your your surprise and your question really just uh, illustrates that just because something is stressful does not mean that it's bad for you. Those are two different things. Um, and in fact, when we start talking about how we measure stress, how you can measure your own stress, one of the things that we get into is not the the objective nature of whether the stressor activates your sympathetic nervous system, but rather um, how that stressor how you perceive that stressor and the perception and how the perception affects your health rather than the stress itself so
1: i guess i was thinking of something like drugs or something where it's fun at the moment maybe or something but then but it's definitely bad for you that's what i was assuming that that's how i imagined your question
0: well uh well in fact you could take drugs, and it would reduce the activation of your autonomic nervous system, and you would feel less stressed. Maybe stress just has the idea
1: everybody has with it together, and the word stress is bad. So it just doesn't have to be bad. Yeah. Yeah. It's just what we perceive it generally. I understand when I think about it, but without thinking. Yeah, yeah. But that's I guess, right. I would assume question was, is there something that's bad for you that's not, basically, like drugs. is oh. only an example like legal,
0: oh. Oh, sure. There's lots of things that are fun, but uh, that, that, that creates, uh, you know, that has negative effects in your life, certainly. Um, but in terms of, uh, you know, if something is fun, your perception of that thing as fun is going to almost sort of offset any negative effects of the, uh, of the stress itself on your body. So it's really, it's really a perception thing, but we'll get into that today too. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely, sure, of course. Depending on their perception. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, um, any other uh, questions before we start out? So we're going to talk about a couple of different approaches to understanding stress and what stress is and defining it and measuring it. So we're going to talk about Sellier, Hans Sellier, and then we're going to talk about Lazarus as an alternative to Sellier. And then uh, we'll talk a little bit about how we measure and appraise uh, stress. So here's the deal with Sellier. Um, Sellier does his research starting out in uh, about the 1930s. And he's active in research right up until the 1980s. And he's gonna come up with the idea, the concept, of what'll become known as the General Adaptation Syndrome, or the GAS. And the General Adaptation Syndrome describes the physiological changes that an organism goes through as it responds to stress, okay? And, um what he's going to say is that the stress response is nonspecific. Essentially, you get the same stress response regardless of what kinds of stressors uh, are present in your environment. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about stress, uh, we went through that little slideshow uh, with the pictures, and I said, "Well, what is stress? You know, is stress your job is stress?" your response? Is stress the interaction? Um, Mostly when we talk about stress, we talk about stressors, which are the actual stimuli in the environment that are going to evoke a response, right? Whereas when we talk about stress, we're specifically referring to an organism's uh, response to that stressor. So when an organism experiences this stressful stimulus, um, how does the, or- the organism's response is what we're actually going to be referring to when we say stress. So stress is your response. But there are plenty of stressors out there. right? And as we said, two different organisms may have different responses to the same stressor. But according to Sellier, the, res- the 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 uh, the the way that the response happens is going to be the same regardless of what the stressor is. Questions on this? Meaning
2: that the, the physiological response is going to be the same no matter what. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: According to according to Sellier, but we'll see that that's a problem. Yeah. So um, when Sellier describes the general adaptation syndrome, he he says we go through three different phases, and in the first phase um, he called the alarm uh, or reaction phase, and during this phase your body has to um, realize that there's a stressor there. And then it has to start making some physiological changes that are going to allow you to respond to that stressor effectively. Right? So if I, uh, you know, if somebody says, hey, look out, and they point above me, and I look up, and there's a 20 ton uh, weight falling down toward me, I'm going to have to activate some kinds of systems in my body that are going to allow me to do what? Get the, <laughs> Get the heck out of there so uh so so that's the this is the point at which um it, they, they say your stress resistance will go down briefly as your body has to suddenly start um, uh responding by um all kinds of metabolic processes that are gonna divert a lot of your resources to energy, to being able to respond, to being able to run away, or to being able to uh, confront the threat. And then um, usually once you've uh, confronted the threat uh, or you've run away, um, there's a period called the uh, resistance phase. And in the resistance phase, if you're still exposed to the stressor, your stress resistance is going to go up for a little while. But at a certain point, what's going to happen is it's going to start to tail off. And when it starts to tail off, when you're not able to, um, you know, to keep um, coping with the stressor uh, minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day, what's going to happen is you're going to start moving into the third phase where uh, you'll go through exhaustion and so you'll uh you know you'll read about a musician who's on tour, and you know they 're doing a show every night, and you know uh they 've got a lot of obligations, and they go 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 go, go, and they 're constantly in this state of stress, and one day they just kind of keel over in exhaustion, and their body basically says i'm done, i can't do this anymore because the autonomic uh, the sympathetic branch of your autonomic nervous system remember is pumping all those um, stress hormones through your system. And you're, you're maintaining a high level of activation, metabolic activation, in all of your bodily systems. And eventually it takes a toll. And um, your body says, nope, no more. And that's when you go into exhaustion. You know, you faint and can't get up and have trouble maintaining electrolyte levels and things like that. So it's very dangerous uh, to, to stay in these stressful situations. Now here's the deal. This is really good. This is a great response system and it works really well for what? Temporary. Short term, like, you know, the 20 ton weight, right? Or the tiger on the trail, the mountain lion on the trail, right? Mobilize your systems, get the heck out of there, and then you can come back to normal. The problem is that um, we don't live in a world of those kinds of stressors for the most part anymore. For the most part, you know, we might almost get into a car accident and that j- activates you for a little while and then you calm down. But for the most part, when we talk about damaging or dangerous stressors, we're talking about these long term situations. You know, um, maybe your boss doesn't like you at work, but he can't afford to fire you, and so you keep going to work every day and you realize, you know, he doesn't like you and he wants to find somebody else and you feel like you're not doing a good job and it just goes on and on and on and on and pretty soon there's nothing left, right? So this response system is not very adaptive for our contemporary social stressors. It is extraordinarily good for the kinds of stressors that we probably faced in our uh, evolutionary past, right? Okay, so uh, questions on this stuff? Mm -hmm. So Sellier's gas, what do we say about Sellier's gas? Um, As I said, basically, Sellier said, uh, this is a physiological response. And it's a very basic response that all organisms have uh, built into them. But all, all, of his subjects were not human He didn't uh, he didn't run human studies, and uh, because he was more interested in controlling variables in his studies, so um, one of the that's one of the criticisms, and the idea that as humans we have pretty unique ways to respond to environmental stressors that maybe a lot of animals don't have, for example. Um, we, um, two, uh, two entirely different people will have two entirely different perceptions of a stressor. You know, we'll see something that one person says, that freaks me out, and another person, it doesn't, right? Uh, in addition, humans do this interesting thing with interpretation and cognition. So we interpret events. And when we do this interpretation, remember, we in, we make interpretations of events not just based on the present situation, right? Because a lot of things that we're afraid of, in the present tense, are not fearful. Mostly, we're afraid of what, the future or the past, or some sort of combination of what, you know, what might happen be based on what I happened before and. Oh, you know, is 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 she really gonna like me, (laughs) right? Um, And this is this like real, um, very different kinds of stressors than probably most animals go through. We don't have a lot of evidence of future cognition in animals. So so it's this future casting that we do that oftentimes is this very intense stress. We worry about what hasn't happened yet, okay? And, um, you know, some of us are, more neurotic than others in that way, but okay so um, so the criticisms of Selye are valid, but his basic description of the physiological process, when we look at human responses to stress, comes out about the same way. Um, it, you know all mammals essentially respond the same way. so when we go beyond Selye we get to Richard Lazarus, and Lazarus is going to come along in the 1980s. And um, he's gonna start doing research with humans uh, on stress responses. And when he expands his research to humans, um, he's gonna define stress specifically as the human response to the perception of threat and vulnerability, okay? So when you see a stressor, you're gonna have to perceive it as threatening or you're going to have to perceive a vulnerability that you have as a result of that stressor. So losing a job for one person may be stressful for another person maybe not, right? Based on their subjective perceptions. Did you really like that job? Did you not like that job? Did you have money in the bank? So losing a job isn't a big deal? Uh, Are you living paycheck to paycheck so you're on the street if you don't have a job, right? So all kinds of other situations are going to come into play in terms of how you uh, interpret uh, and perceive that stressful situation. And as I said, when we think about future events, that's all about um, perceiving a threat or a vulnerability that doesn't exist already, right? So in that way, um, you know, we've got these really kind of somewhat unique patterns and processes. Um, Oh, I already talked about this. Um, And uh, we've got this interesting thing about optimism. Um, Some of us are very optimistic. Some of us are pessimistic. And optimists, when we talked about um, unrealistic optimism and realistic optimism, someone with unrealistic optimism may not be stressed out by the fact that they're uh, having unsafe uh, sex someone maybe with a more realistic optimism or a pessimistic view is going to be stressed out by the same kind of thing, right? Right. Well, that's um, when. So the question is, when you go through a a stressful or traumatic event, and you perform what's called a reframing of it or a reinterpretation of it as being, uh, you know, I lose my job, but now I have an opportunity to change careers, which I didn't, you know, I didn't feel uh, free to do before I lost my job, right? Um, Really, what it is, you know, your your stress is going to go down. Uh, you're reinterpreting in a different way you're percep- you're changing your perception and it's a coping mechanism it allows you to cope with the stressor by saying oh, i didn't really want that job anyway right even if it's true or not so you're going to Sometimes we do a lot of we do a, yeah we do a lot of that we do a lot of like lying to ourselves to make ourselves feel better don't I just we I thought that was
1: just
0: people being stupid No 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 <laughs> um, well, Um, People who do crazy things are not crazy. You know, as human beings, we do a lot of weird kinds of stuff. We study this in social psych. If you're interested in that, take that course. Um, But this is called cognitive dissonance. We talk. You already read about cognitive dissonance. Yeah, it's cognitive dissonance. So in order to reduce that arousal, we make up excuses for why we did something or why we do something. And that helps us feel better about ourselves, right? Um, so, it's kind of a way of coping, right? So, uh, when Lazarus talks about stress, he's going to define a concept of psychological stress, which is going to be a little bit different than uh, Selye's physiological stress response. And he's going to say psychological stress is a particular relationship between the person and the environment, okay? So you've got the person, and then you've got the environment the person is in. And that relationship, if it is appraised by the person as taxing or exceeding the resources that you have available to deal with that environmental stressor, um, uh, or uh, endangering uh, your well-being. So here's the important Here's the pivotal word here, appraised. So it's your appraisal that's going to really determine how stressful something is. You have control, really, is what that says. So there's an optimistic part of it. On the other hand, because it's an environmental stressor that you can't control, and it's going to endanger your well-being or... Exceed maybe your resources you have available to deal with it, that's going to be stressful. So you've got some control over your appraisal, but the stressor itself and your resources you may not have a a lot of control over. So that's sort of good news, bad news in there. But
2: you can still eliminate some of the
0: stress by your appraisal? Yeah, yeah. Again, that cognitive reframing. Yeah. So um, so this is what we call a transactional approach to understanding stress. That there's a transaction between the person and the environment. The person contributes something, and the environment contributes something, and what we get, the product of the transaction, is stress.
1: Um,
0: and that transaction, that interaction, that the the uh, combined contributions of the environment and the person are going to be moderated by the appraisal that you do. So your appraisal is going to modify or moderate that transaction, right? So you can make it more stressful. You can make it less stressful with that appraisal, OK? And then finally, um, in order for something to be stress, the um, person has to perceive it as being um, a threat to their psychological well-being. Okay? Um, a challenge, that is that um, it provides uh, an opportunity for growth right, um, or some kind of psychological harm. So are you actually harmed by the stressor psychologically? Okay. So Lazarus's approach is more comprehensive than Selye's, especially when we start dealing with human beings rather than animals, okay? Cuz it's going to have much more of that cognitive approach. Remember, um uh Selye was working in the 1930s, 40s, 50s. What's the dominant paradigm in psychology? Uh, uh, Along with the psychodynamic for explaining behavior? The behaviorism. Yeah, behavioral perspective. And so behaviorism says your behavior is a product of the history of reinforcement that you've had in the past. So it's very deterministic, and it doesn't consider the black box and what's going on up here. This is much more about the black box. And this so this is coming along in the 1980s after we've gone through the behaviorist approach and we've emerged into the cognitive uh, psychological approach, right? OK. Oh. Well, glad you could join us. How nice. Thank you very much. That's OK. I'm just joking around with you. I'm not serious. We'd rather be out there in the sunshine with you, though. Um, okay, so uh, let's look at how Lazarus thinks of this appraisal process and how we um, how we approach appraising stressful situations. So he's going to say there's a primary appraisal, and we can appraise a stress a stressor. Um, as irrelevant to us, right, so uh, you know I wake up in the morning, and I turn on the radio, and I find out there was you know a um, cyclone that went through Burma, you know wiped out a bunch of villages i'm sad about that i 'm a little bit maybe stressed, but mostly it's irrelevant to my life. Um, you know uh, you know the earthquake in China probably more relevant you know it's you know, because we're, you know, much bigger part of each other's economy and things like that. But um, you know, so the relevance is going to have an effect on how I'm going to appraise this stress. Um, also, my appraisal is going to depend on whether it's a benign or positive stress, versus one that is um, harmful or or negative. Right. So you're talking about, you know, how can sex be stressful? Well, it's stressful, but we appraise it as not being so stressful. Right. Um, And then whether or not it ultimately is a stress, you know, it provides this physiological stress. What's that? Probably more therapeutic. Yeah, it could be therapeutic. I don't know. I think I want to go to your therapist. (laughs) (laughs) My therapist, well, he (laughs) just gives me drugs. um, Maybe I I don't want to go to your therapist. Um, Okay. So um, so when we, uh, when we appraise something as stressful, generally we think of it as being harmful, threatening, or challenging. And it's, we generally think of it as being harmful, he says, um, when we experience these kinds of emotion, anger, sadness, um, disgust, contempt, right? Um, threat, when we appraise something as threatening, stressful and threatening, what we generally tend to feel are the kinds of afraid kinds of emotions. So fear, anxiety, worry, right? And when we appraise something as being challenging, we experience excitement or anticipation, right? When you go to your therapist's office, you <laughs> experience lots of anticipation, right? So, um, so yeah. So oh, yeah, so this is a nice, really nice comprehensive kind of model for understanding how we can experience things so vastly different as individuals, right? So this is the what he calls the primary appraisal, and we do this first, and then after that, we go through a secondary appraisal, which says, okay, now that I've appraised it, as being either irrelevant, benign or positive, or stressful in this way. What are my options? What can I do about it? Um, Also, we have to ask ourselves, what's the likelihood that I can actually do anything that will reduce my stress, okay? Or will my actions be um, ineffective? right? Will my actions actually uh, result in a stress reduction? And then he says, after we've gone through the primary appraisal, and then the secondary appraisal, bless you, right? Is that a sneeze? Okay, I was kind of, I wasn't sure. So then we go through this reappraisal. So now we go back and re-examine it. And um, because once we do this stuff, once we think about options, once we think about our likelihood and um, whether the actions I take will actually reduce the stress, that's going to change how we feel about the stress, right? The more control we have, the less stressed out we generally tend to be, right? Lack of control is one of the major stressors in your lives. And in fact, uh, in uh, organizational psychology, um, in terms of office environments, both social environments and physical environments, the more control you give your employees over their environment, both their physical environment and their social environment, and their perception of control in their job, the less stressed out they're generally going to be. So control is a huge thing for people. Being able to control your environment. That's what we do. That's what really makes us a lot different from animals, isn't it? We control and modify our environments. And most animals live within the habitat and the environment. You know, for better or worse, right? Global warming is partly a product of us controlling our environments and altering our environments, right? So, questions on this stuff? Um, you know, I would say Lazarus would probably say they are active cognitive appraisals. We may do them uh, without conscious awareness. It seems like, do, like this naturally. Yeah, it could be without conscious. I don't know if Lazarus specified one way or the other. So what I'm passing out to you is the stress appraisal measure. You're welcome. And um, this is uh, a scale that's used to um, interpret and to maybe measure and quantify your appraisal of a particular situation in the future. Okay. So you've got an exam coming up when? A week from today? No. Two weeks from today. Yeah, because we don't have class next Thursday. So a week from Tuesday then. Yeah, right after I get back. Is that right? Yeah, because we're doing the lab on Tuesday. So you've got an exam coming up. I would like you to fill out this stress uh, appraisal measure in reference to how you are feeling about that exam coming up. Okay. so it gives you a bunch of questions and then you indicate whether you say not at all slightly moderately considerably extremely so go ahead and do that circle yeah 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 yeah. how you feel today yeah that's fine yeah don't invent don't imagine your stress in the future that's like you like you need more stress but and uh, i'll pause the podcast um well actually uh I'll let you do that, and we'll take a little break too and then we'll come back and interpret the uh, stress appraisal measure okay
1: <laughs>
0: so uh, so now that hey hello, now that you've filled out the um, stress appraisal measure. Um, it's time to give yourself a little bit of scoring on it. Now, um, there are uh, these seven different subscales to the stress appraisal measure. So what I'd like you to do is add together the numbers on each of these subscales to represent uh, an index for threat, for example. So go ahead and add each uh, the number each of these question numbers together the score of each of those questions numbers together to get your subscale scores. We should have lines across this. Can help <laughs> yeah, I'll put those on there next time. Yeah. I'll tell you in a minute. So uh, add together your um, score on each of these items to get the subscale uh, total for each of these subscales. So add together the number you circled on question 5 plus the question 11 plus question 20 plus question 28. Okay, you guys are cruising right along. So uh, well, I'll start because the people that I'm going to ask are here. So Gleanne, uh Jared, and Laura, um, uh, in order, what are your scores for the threat scale? Five. Five. Seven. Seven. Twelve. Twelve and uh challenge 14 uh-huh uh-huh 11. okay and centrality 11 uh-huh 12. 12 okay control self 20 20 Two zero. okay okay 17, 17. okay and Twenty. Okay. Wow. Huh. Fifteen. And then uncontrollable. Five. Four. Six. Good. And then stressfulness. Nine. Seven. Twelve. Okay. Good. So, uh, do you see any kind of patterns there? Um, Laura scores quite a bit higher in terms of threat, um, and also notice that uh, she winds up scoring a little bit higher. So there's threat and stressfulness are pretty, pretty tightly correlated in this particular case. Um, for most of you, the degree to which you think that exam, the outcome of that exam, is uncontrollable, or the stress from it is uncontrollable, is very low. Right. So you, you generally tend to feel some mastery uh, over the, uh, the stress itself in the exam indirectly. Um, so, And most of you also scored fairly high in the control uh, scores. Uh, now, as we said, threat has to do with um, the degree to which you feel that that situation poses um, a risk of harm to you either psychologically or physically. Um, Challenge, remember, is about excitement, is about um, potential for growth, things like that. Um, And so uh, for the most part, you guys scored in the middle on that. Centrality was a big difference here. And centrality has to do, what are the question items for centrality? What's the question for number six? Okay, and number, Nine okay, and number thirteen, okay, and number uh what is it twenty seven so you get the idea of centrality. it's like how much is this situation form a core for your present sense of self and then your future sense of self, right? And, um, you know, uh, Gleanne has a relatively low score there. The other two have a little bit higher. Now, I have a suspicion here. Um, I suspect that I'm pretty pretty sure I know that you have children. Okay, you've got the business. You've got a, a lot of other stuff going on outside. And I wonder if, you know, the two of you may have sort of, your, your identity is more tied into your success on the exam or t- indirectly in the class um, than yours might be where you've maybe identi- you know you've formed this unique yeah, I identity.
2: I have a specific major, and
0: I'm still kind of working on that, so it's like maybe if I had a specific thing, it would have more weight, but since I'm still kind of figuring it out, it okay. might have more weight, I'm just, I'm, you know what I'm saying? Are you guys um, uh, thinking of majoring in psychology? Or? Something related? No? Okay. So um so why do you think you guys have a higher centrality score? Any ideas? Uh, I did terrible on the last test. So okay. This next test kind of weighs on a lot of my grade. Well not a lot of my grade, but it's kind of grade. Okay, okay. Okay. Or well being. Right. Right. Any ideas? Um, I be great I like the so, OK, you know. so there's a lot writing on it, yeah. So, um, so again, this is the idea of appraisal. You're appraising the centrality much differently than the two of them, right? So, um, so how you appraise something is going to ultimately contribute to really how stressful it's going to feel to you. So what if your centrality's like <laughs> <laughs> then you need to get a life.
2: <laughs> I think mine would be really high too. What eighteen? That's
0: high. Um, well, if you consider that the maximum would be twenty, right? Five times four. Um, eighteen is pretty close to to the maximum. Yeah. <laughs> Um, be, probably because threat composes um, maybe less of your appraisal of stress than does challenge or centrality or could, excuse me, control possibly. I'm not sure, yeah. Okay, so this is just a, a way to get a, a general measure of how you're appraising a stressful situation. And someone, if for example, if a psychotherapist was working with you, they might be able to say, oh well, look, um, you know, if you score twenty on centrality, <laughs> they're gonna go, hmm. I wonder um how you could reappraise this so it's not quite as important to your core sense of self and future and stuff like that. I don't feel like it is. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> don't don't think of yourself as pathological for sure. <laughs> I don't think there's any pathological values here. Uh, so, so okay. So that's the um, general stress appraisal measure. So we can get a kind of measure of your stressfulness overall, but then also in these um, sort of sub-items and sub-areas where you can focus. For example, with a cognitive behavioral therapist, you might be able to focus working on improving, uh, reducing these scores in terms of uh, stress. Yeah, question? Yeah. No, generally, if you have um, relatively high uh, control self, that means that you have um, you have a you have an appraisal that you have control over the outcome, as opposed to other people having control over the outcome. Perhaps so internal um, sense of control, yeah. internal locus of control. Possibly, I don't know what the I don't know what the correlation is with internal locus of control.
2: So the others is that a high others
0: does that mean other people in the same situation? Um, do I don't think so. What are the questions?
2: Um,
0: oh, it has to do with.
2: Is the outcome of the situation uncontrollable by anyone?
0: Oh, okay. And what else? Uh, what are the so other questions? The other oh, I'm sorry. Course. I'm sorry. Let me go back.
2: <laughs> um, so Four, like Four, fifteen. 15.
1: 15. Is there anyone help you manage this problem? Is there anybody help you
0: cope with this problem? Oh, really? Okay, so the control has to do with being able to call on others rather than others being in control, maybe. Yeah. Except for yeah. high others control. just means you uh, appraise the situation that, um, that you can call on other people for yes. assistance, yeah.
2: <laughs> it like projecting my
0: expectations myself on others. Okay. So it's, All right. there might be things that people don't have as much control do. Yeah, right. Yeah, don't forget that, you know, you're if you're the boss, you're in charge, yeah. but the people working for you, they may have a whole different perspective, sure. Yeah. Okay. So uh Lazarus not only has some ideas about how stress works, but also how we respond and cope with the stressor, and so um, remember the uh, second phase of the general adaptation syndrome is about responding to the stressor and coping with it. And so Lazarus says coping. He defines coping as um, the constantly changing cognitive and behavioral efforts that we out, you know that we expend, the effort that we use to help manage those external and or internal demands um, that we appraise, again, as being taxing or exceeding the resources that we have available, right? So so what this means is, first of all, that coping is a process. It's not an end. It's not a product. It's a constantly changing process. that uh that um, we we change our coping behaviors in response to the success or failure of our coping efforts um, that we've tried to use in the situation, right, so we learn from our coping efforts what works, what doesn't work. The second important thing here that he says it's it's not an automatic process; coping doesn't happen automatically. It's something that we actually have to learn. So, an effective thing to teach children in school, elementary school mm-hmm. especially, is how to cope with stress. How to cope with, you know, their classmates that are taunting them, how to cope with um the demands of the school, how to cope with, you know, difficulty they're having with their parents or something like that. So, and what it means is you have to teach somebody to try new strategies, right? because these things don't just come to us automatically. But a lot of us don't get taught how to cope with um, stressful situations. And then uh, another important factor that Lazarus identifies in this definition is that it takes effort to do this. It's not as if this comes without its own costs in terms of um, energy, time, uh, resources. And what's important for um, coping is that we get a sense that we are able to manage and control our situation. Again, this comes back to that issue of control. Mm -hmm. The more control we feel over our environmental situation and over these stressful situations, the more likely we will uh, feel as if we're successfully coping. Whoops. Sorry. Didn't mean to flip that. Okay. Um in what ways do you feel like um or do you not feel like you've been taught coping? Or have you just learned it trial and error maybe? Did anybody have any do you remember ever learning it really explicitly? Yeah.
2: Oh, good. And, and awesome. And, like, it, it was like in grade school, like in like fourth, third, fourth, fifth grade, I don't know, somewhere around there that they taught us the breathing techniques
0: and things like that. And then that was it,
2: and then? I think that was pretty much it. I'm sure in health class, like in I don't middle school and high school, they taught us other
0: things. I don't know. Really... Yeah, right. Well, you can have that. I never went to grade school, so I missed
2: out on the breathing. Well, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know,
0: We'll actually do some uh, some stress management stuff in the lab on, uh, Thursday, on Tuesday, so, yeah. Um, what else? Any other coping skills that you've learned along the way with stress?
2: Basically, just observation at home, I mean, probably... Watching your parents right. coping successfully? Probably anything that they tried to teach me in school I thought was kind of silly, so... <laughs>
0: So, um, so a lot of times this will come from parents, but of course, if the parents have never learned it, then they're going to have a hard time teaching it to their children, too. Do you mean,
2: when I was a kid, like, we weren't allowed to, like, hit each other, but my mom said that you can still get your anger out by hitting your pillow or screaming your pillow you Sure. as much as you want, but you can't touch your sister. Sure. So I used to try to beat sister
0: with a Well, hopefully you would be able to deal with the stress before you got to the anger and aggression yeah. part. But... Like when I was. Yeah, But, you know, for kids, for real young kids, it's really hard, isn't it? Why? What part of the brain hasn't developed fully that's involved with impulse control and all of it? Impulse control, planning... The for, yeah, the frontal cortex, the prefrontal cortex. And that really doesn't develop until adolescence. And even then, it, you know, sometimes the early to mid-20s. And so it's hard for kids. Self-control and self-regulation, sure, sure. Yeah, being able to regulate your your, uh, your arousal, sure. Yeah? Also personalities, perhaps, I think personalities would have a big part of how, yeah. how do you respond to that? So what we call temperament mm-hmm. in children a lot, yeah, sure. Sure. So here's, uh, here's what uh, Lazarus proposes for um, uh, coping and how coping works. He says, um, Coping requires, uh, first of all, that you be healthy and that you have energy available. Because when you're sick or when you're tired, your ability to summon those effortful resources that you're going to need to actually do the coping is low, right? Um, in addition, he says, um, you need to have a positive belief in your ability to actually change the situation, right? Or to change your appraisal. If you don't believe you can positively affect the situation or the outcome, then that's gonna, ha- that's gonna be a problem for coping. It's gonna make coping difficult. Um, also, he says, coping is a skill. And like any skill, you need to be able to solve problems. You need to be able to identify problems and then creatively uh, find solutions to those problems. You need to uh, have developed social skills, okay? Because sometimes you need to reach out to other people for help as part of your coping, right? Um, And that's also going to involve what's consistently going to come up as a great buffer against uh, stress illness, um, psychological disorders is social support. Um, Being able having a a network of friends, having a network of family members, having a religious community that you can reach out to that's going to be able to provide you support uh, as part of your coping. And then finally he says sometimes we just need money. You know we need the stuff that's going to allow us to um, you know to work on coping if you're uh, you know if you're out of money and um, you're sick and you don't have any energy and you have negative attitudes and you haven't developed these kinds of skills that's a recipe for stress without coping okay and that's not good that's not good Yeah, uh, yeah, deficiency in any one of these areas is going to diminish your ability to successfully um, uh, create a coping strategy. OK, so that's pretty much Salier and Lazarus. Any questions on this stuff? I like Lazarus's um, models. I think they're really worthwhile and really useful. Um, these out later okay so let's talk about um, what actually happens uh, in your body in terms of um, physiological effects of stress right Um, as we said with the general adaptation syndrome it's no problem when you go into a stress uh, you you encounter a stress stressful situation and your body mobilizes the resources it needs to respond to that stress. That's fine. Um, The problem, uh, and and you go through those two stages, the alarm stage and the resistance stage. The problem is when you go past the resistance stage and you start going into this exhaustion stage. And that's where we see problems in uh, people's health as a product of uh, stress, because your body can't tolerate that intense uh, activity, that intense sympathetic nervous system activity for very long. And um, what we generally tend to see at this point, up until you get into the exhaustion stage, your sympathetic nervous system is able to be countered effectively by the parasympathetic. Remember, because they're both active at the same time. And the parasympathetic counters the activation of the sympathetic nervous system. Uh, the sympathetic is activating. parasympathetic is calming or reducing the activation. OK? So um, in the exhaustion stage, the parasympathetic nervous system can't keep act, can't keep um, uh, uh, countering the effects of the, of the sympathetic nervous system. So what happens is the sympathetic is active without being countered, and that's when you go into exhaustion, right? Um, because your body can't stay in that constant state of activation. Do you remember? Do you do you remember cortisol and corticosterone? The the hormones that are very um, uh, damaging to your body systems, right? Um, Your blood sugar is at a high level, and that's gonna cause problems in your body systems. And eventually, your body systems are gonna shut down because they can't continue to be activated. Yeah, yeah. It's not like, you know, it's not like, oh, uh, I'm a little bit tired today, so I'm gonna have a cup of coffee to wake up, right? This is like having a cup of coffee, and having another one, having another one, having another one, having another one, and then a Red Bull, and then another one, and then half, and more. And th- <laughs> right? Can't keep that up. Yeah. Yeah. You just like to see me jump around like a monkey. I know you. <laughs> does, you know,
1: when you just think about it, it's like the thing that keeps you calm shuts down. So why do you fall over? What,
0: what keeps you calm is keeping you from wiping out your body's reserves. See? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I understand that, but I guess it would be where you finally, like, that would calm down, and then you'd have, like, a burst of energy, and then you'd fall over.
0: Okay, well, sure. Yeah, okay. that's fine. Okay. If like you want to, yeah, if you want to think of it that way. That's good. Missing. Yep, you can do that. That's fine. Yep. <laughs> and so, um, so what stresses us out? Uh well, when we talk about um stressors, we generally tend to think of um some pretty significant kinds of life changes. Um so these are some of the major ones. Um when someone close to us dies. That's a real high level major life stressor. Um when we get divorced, right? Similarly, when we get married is also a um, pretty strong stressor, and um, unemployment mm-hmm. certainly is. Mm-hmm. Again, these are all going to depend on your appraisal of the situation, right? So, for some people, um, divorce is going to be a more, or perhaps, you know, some people are going to have a less of a stress response because. Uh, it, their appraisal of the future consequences, their appraisal of centrality, their appraisal of threat—all those things are going to be different. Is,
2: um, I for, told me that, um, like moving your home is comparable, like physiologically in your body, to the same kind of stuff you experience
0: when someone dies. Um. Pretty close, as I recall. It's not on this list. Yeah, that's it. How high is that? That's number twenty. Mm-hmm. Oh, are you? What are you? What are you looking at? Oh, it's number, it's number are you looking 32. at the social readjustment scale? The one. 32? It's number Thirty-two. The yeah. Value. Okay. So that's you know that's relatively low actually. Yeah. Okay, so uh, what I passed out is a set of four um, questionnaires, And the first one is an assessment of major life event changes uh, and the relative uh, stressful contribution that those have, right? And so uh, basically the instructions are to, um, you know, score this out. You can do this on your own time. score this out and then add up the scores. And it says on the back, if your score is 300 or more, you uh, stand at an 80% chance of getting sick in the near future. If your score is 150 to 299, it's about 50%, less than 150, about 30%. So what this was, how this was developed was uh, they gave it out to people. And then they looked at those people's uh, physiological responses. Did they get sick in the future? Did they not get sick? And so from that data, they were able to come up with these cutoffs that kind of indicate your statistical risk for uh, stress-related illness in the future. Um, But notice that there's not much here in terms of appraisal, is there? Like how do you appraise, you know, I might appraise marital separation very differently from you do, but it's got the same score for each of us. So there's a, some validity and reliability questions on this um, scale. You don't, you just, if this has happened to you, you, just take that number and you, yeah, you score
2: uh, it as
0: what you
2: feel like hours
0: of whatever the number hundred. No, you take the value of a hundred and add it together. Yeah, yeah. So uh, in addition to these major life changes and in fact what we're seeing that has um, a larger effect on stress and stress-related illnesses are these long-term, sort of day after day after day, kinds of stressful experiences. Oh, incidentally, the second page of that handout is a modification of that um, social readjustment scale for undergraduate populations. Because obviously, college undergraduates are gonna have different kinds of uh, major life events. So that's just a, it just uses a different population for that. Um, and these, um, these ongoing sort of daily uh, hassles as they're called, um, usually come in the form of environmental stressors, work stressors, um, sleep deprivation is oftentimes one of these intense um, daily hassles. The personal relationships we have, can be hassles right um and in fact the response that you have to stress you know so when you're in the presence of your marriage partner if you're married and we measure your stress response that'll give us um a really good measure of how likely it is you're gonna get divorced Okay. And that's work that was done by uh, John Gottman at the University of Washington. Um, Really interesting research. Um, Whoops, I'm sorry. So uh, okay. So in order, so here's the deal. Um, Environmental stressors, we think of things like noise, Uh, big stressor for people crowding pollution crime and if you live in a city guess what you got all that stuff and this stuff compounds so generally um, cities are stressful places to live in comparison to um, areas where you don't have these kinds of stressors but again it's going to be factored by appraisal how do you appraise that situation as stressful or not stressful um now all of these things are are all good and fine but guess what a lot of this stuff especially personal relationships that can be both a hassle but also what um uh, Anita DeLongis and uh, Folkman refer to as uplifts so the third scale in this packet is the hassles and uplift scale. And the deal with the hassles and uplift scale is that um, just before you go to bed, sit down and reflect on each of these items and how, to what degree you felt those factors of your life were a hassle to you, caused you problems, versus what degree there were uh, uplifts. So for example, children. That particular day, yeah, and so for example, children, you know, children are both a hassle and an uplift, but maybe the uplifts exceed the hassles, right? And so one of the ways this is used is to help people as they're going through um, sort of stress coping training, to be able to to see how their hassles and uplifts are changing, and are they reappraising things as more of an uplift and less of a hassle, right? Okay. Yeah, it's a zero score, Yep. Yep, fortunately. <laughs> okay, so how are we going to measure stress? Well, we talked about the social uh, readjustment rating scale. This is sometimes just called the major life Events scale. Uh, the undergraduate stress questionnaire, again, good for undergraduate populations. Um, the hassles and uplift scale. Um, which has more to do with daily events. And this was developed, I uh, took a health psychology class from Anita DeLongis at the University of British Columbia. Um, And then the last one in this packet is the social support scale. And what this does is it gives you an opportunity to recognize um, areas that we know of that usually provide people social support, and how much social support you feel from those areas. So this is a good scale to go through and start and recognize the places where you can get social support, or start cultivating areas where you're not getting social support, but you can. So for example, if you don't belong to a religious community, that might be you know, an indication that it might be a good time to maybe start getting involved if you have problems of getting social support from other areas. Um, so or, or, you know, a group concerned with the environment or a self-improvement group or whatever, right? Okay. Questions? On measuring stress How many of these should you or a few? oh no I'm just giving you samples yeah there's even tons more than these um, you know it really depends on for example if you're in a therapy or something and you're developing coping skills the particular goals of the therapy might determine what kinds of measurements or scales they might use yeah in the case of uh, frank's therapy they 've got a whole different thing going so um, okay, so psycho neuroimmunology big uh, fifty dollar word for um, how your um, how your mental processes and your behaviors affect your neurologic systems and your immune systems and how the interactive effects work between all three of these things. So, um, so what we know is um, the central nervous system and the immune system are independent systems but they're interactive, they talk to each other. So the central nervous system talks to the immune system, the immune system talks to your central nervous system. Okay. So you, your brain, has some control over your immune system processes. Most of us think of our immune system as being relatively, uh, not really in our our voluntary control at least, Um, but um, the immune system can actually be classically conditioned, right? Just like I can get you to salivate when I play a harmonica tone, you can condition or your your immune system can be conditioned to um, to be uh, impaired. So this is research done with uh, rats. If we give them uh, a saccharin solution and pair it with, it's a sweet tasting uh, solution, and we pair that sweet tasting solution with an immunosuppressant that suppresses the rat's immune system, so it's not activated, it's, it's inactivated. And we do that pairing enough, when we give them the sweet tasting powder their immune system takes a dive all by itself without the immunosuppressant. How do they know their immune system takes a dive? Because uh, we can measure, for example, um, lymphocytes and T-cells and the, the kinds of um, cells and uh, processes that are generated by the immune system. Yeah, yeah so I can, you know, for example with uh, HIV is an immune suppressing disease and one of the uh, diagnostics, or at least one of the um, Tracking the progress of your HIV has to do with checking for different kinds of um, Organisms and cells in your blood so yeah Yeah Um, We also uh, have some good data about um, How loneliness affects your immune system. This is in college students that this research was done Um, Generally uh, students who are lonelier will um, report um, more problems with immune system function um, when they're put under exam stress and uh actually, you know it's kind of fun to work with college students um, because they're either poor and they want money or they have to participate in research for psychology course credit, and you can actually infect them with diseases and um, see what happens, how they, you know, how their immune system responds. But we'll talk about that in a second. Um, chronic stressors um, for women who have been uh, recently separated, um, we see uh, consistently see reduced immune system function. In addition. Men uh, who had a spouse die recently um, also consistently display lower immune system function. And this can be the cause of death, right? Um, If you get an infection and your immune system can't respond to it effectively, um, people will die from from having this uh, impaired immune system. So it's important to have good coping mechanisms to be able to deal with the kinds of stressors uh, that you may be exposed to in life. Okay. It's interesting how it just says men whose wives have recently died. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. I um,
2: would guess that that's who they did the study on, and they don't have data
0: for the other group. I think you're not right about that, but uh, here's the deal: most people. Um, I think most people underestimate the degree to which men are dependent on women. You know, Is that In this culture, we tend to think, oh, well, the women are dependent on the men. But in reality, psychologically, uh, men have a high dependence uh, on women for good functioning. Yeah. Uh, in my family history, there's several cases
2: where grandma dies and grandpa dies a month later. hmm
0: <laughs> well, maybe Grandpa's kind of a stressor for Grandma. I don't know. I don't know yeah, it is not that uncommon for um once one partner dies that the other partner will die within a year. Uh, I think that's you know that that's the kind of cut off where if you get through that year, you're okay, you're good to go, but yeah, oftentimes it's within that year. Um how are you going to uh actually improve your immune system? Um well, for one thing, uh relaxation training. So you can work with a therapist for um you can work with a therapist for relaxation training, Frank. <laughs> 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 um
1: Relaxing after the- <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, the therapy is kind of a stressor, but <laughs> then the relaxation comes later. So, uh, and we'll actually be doing some of this uh, in class on Tuesday. <laughs> be sure to be here. <laughs> um, I'm, just, I'm
2: thinking of the, 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 the movie cliche of smoking a cigarette after this. <laughs>
0: Yeah, bring your cigarettes. Um, so, uh, so we're going to do relaxation through biofeedback um, training. So we'll see the effect of biofeedback on, uh, on your uh, autonomic nervous system. In addition, if the uh, stress comes from a trauma, um, consistently we see if people write about the trauma, um, they, their, their immune system is improved. And uh, in addition, aerobic training and stress management um, are always effective. This, you know, exercise comes up again and again and again, not only in stress management and coping, but also in uh, dealing with the effects of psychological disorders, for example. Um, Oftentimes depression, uh, one treatment for depression is exercise. Um, So. Just wish I could follow my own advice. Um, Incidentally, uh, this is that research I was telling you. I think this was the research I was telling you about, um, where uh, they took college students and uh, infected them with the rhinovirus. And um, they had one group who wrote about some kind of trauma they had experienced, and another group You know, it was the control group that didn't write. And the the ones who were doing the writing didn't get sick, and the ones who didn't did get sick. So um, I think that's what that was. So um, we've got a lot of good data and research on stress. Um, In this culture, this is a high, this is a very intense culture we live in. You know, your expectations for production and productivity and as college students you know, you're really in a high stress situation. So it's good to develop these kinds of skills if you can. so the so the manage- the health management is stressful, yeah. and getting sick is stressful, so which are you gonna you know which, which, yeah. yeah, you're between a rock and a hard place um, you know, I think what you have to deal with is um reducing the stress you feel in the health management part, so um you know when you think about you know when you think about. Planning or you know doing whatever it is you have to do Take some deep breaths write about it go run around the block. Um, I don't know. Yeah Uh, Any other uh, questions? Uh, yeah, the paper assignment's available on the Downloads website, and uh, as I said, we'll be doing a lab on uh, Tuesday. It will be fun, and, and it will involve pain. <laughs> <laughs> You'll see. Not Frank's kind of pain, no. Hopefully.